Tell I'm going to read one portion of a paragraph from chapter 3 of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, which definitely tells us what we are and what we can expect. For those of you who are not familiar with the book Alcoholics Anonymous, it was written 40 years ago by men and women just like you and I who sit here today. It wasn't written by any professional literary geniuses or any great educators. It was written by men and women who by their own admission professed to being alcoholic. They said this, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And we know that no real alcoholic ever recovers that control. It is true that some of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grips of a progressive illness, that over any period of time we will get worse, never better. Now, I'm trying to discuss that a little bit with you today, the fact that over any period of time we will get worse, never better. It's only an opinion of mine that that pertinent fact that over any period of time we will get worse, never better, is generally treated rather lightly by many people who approach the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It appears to me that they still think, despite all that they have heard, all that they themselves have experienced, that they are a little bit different, and that some of these things that are retold and retold by members of Alcoholics Anonymous are reserved for another class of people, not necessarily you. I don't know any way, and I wish I did, I don't know any way to convince you that if your attitude is like that, that you're almost insanely wrong. Experience has taught me, while I have been a member of this program, that every word in this book is substantiated by the truth that is exemplified in other people's experiences. Like many people who first came to AA, and I heard these so-called countless tales of horror and hideousness, I too believe that they were reserved for a certain kind of alcoholic, and that surely uh, I myself, as a result of my own diagnosis, uh, did not feel as though uh, any of those horrible, hideous things could be in store for me. I lived under a, a very popular illusion. I lived under an illusion that all of these things that brought you down low 
came in sort of like steps that you had to take one at a time to eventually reach that that horror and that oblivion that we all know so well. But experience has taught me that that illusion was entirely wrong. That like falling down a flight of stairs, many people just tumble very quickly and wind up at the bottom. And that in order to go down a flight of stairs, you just about hit every one. But sometimes you hit two or three of them all at the same time. So there is no uh, pace that takes you down. And there was another illusion that I had, was that I had to drink as much as those people who had experienced all of this horror. I can recall one friend of mine early in AA, a guy by the name of Muggs McGinnis from Freeport, Illinois, uh, that as far as I'm concerned, uh, he experienced more hell and more torment than shame and what have you as a result of uh, his persistence in trying to regain the ability to control his drinking, uh, that he experienced more of that than any man I had ever heard up until that time or since that time. Uh, I was often amazed that, that a guy could possibly live through all of the things that, that he lived through. and. Uh, yet to return once more to uh, some semblance of normalcy. And uh, Muggs told how uh, he had drank, you know, for something like 25 years uh, in what he considered a, a social way. He hadn't experienced, you know, uh, all of this hell until the, the latter part of his drinking, as the book says. He said, but for 25 years, you know, he drank, and of course he was probably exaggerating, he talked about drinking two-fifths a day and going on 30-day benders and, and being in drunk tanks overnight. And, and, and so because of uh, not my youth, but just because of my newness to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, my unknowing about anything about alcohol, I realized that in order for me to become like Muggs, you know, I had at least 25 years of of a type of drinking that would demand two-fifths a day, 30-day benders, and, and stuff like that. And, and as of that time, I had not reached that point in my life. Uh, I don't think, uh, really, and I, can, I say this in all honesty, I don't think there's ever been a day in my drinking career that I ever drank over a fifth of whiskey in a day, maybe a little bit over, but boy, if it was, there, there were very few. Uh, I did drink uh, a lot more wine uh, in the later days, you know. It wasn't uh, odd or unique, and I'm not saying this to get a medal. It's something you shouldn't be proud of. But uh, I know for a fact that there was a time in my life where I, where I subsisted, actually lived uh, by drinking uh, eight, seven or eight quarts of wine in a 24-hour period, uh, which is probably... Uh, a hell of a lot more harmful than a fifth of whiskey, but it was easier for me and more palatable for me to, to drink that amount of wine, uh, probably the same amount. Uh, I have never really figured it out, but there's probably the same amount of alcohol in about uh, eight quarts of wine, I guess, that there's in uh, 
in a fifth of whiskey. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, only reason I say that is because uh, if I could drink a fifth of whiskey and then pass out, uh, that would have been my tolerance point there in whiskey. Well, eight bottles of wine used to cause me to pass out, and so that must have been equal to the fifth of whiskey. I'm not saying either that I sat right down at a table, you know, and just sat there and drank a fifth of whiskey and then went off to bed. Uh, I don't know how alcohol affects you. I could probably get through uh, uh, three quarters of the fifth and then I'd either pass out or fall asleep or something and then wake up and take a couple of more whacks out of the jug, fall off into sleep again. And a couple of hours later, wake up and take a few more until the fifth was actually gone. Maybe in the beginning of that type of drinking, I had the capacity to perhaps maybe drink more than a fifth in a day. Uh, I think, I, I never thought it was going to be important in those days, but I think there was a time when I drank two-fifths of whiskey uh, a day, and I rationalized that very, very easily, uh, because if you're not familiar with weights and measures, there are approximately 26 ounces in a fifth of whiskey. I used to be in the saloon business in Illinois, and just a regular neighborhood shop and beer joint where everybody drank straight shots just about. And uh, I used to drink right along with the customers all day long, you know, probably not as often as they did, and, and not with all of them, but if there was 10 or 12 guys at the bar, yeah, undoubtedly two or three would want to buy me a drink or something like that. And, and I would drink along with them. And I used to figure this. Uh, I worked in that saloon for 16 hours a day. Uh, I was like everybody else, you know, trying to make a million dollars in the first year and uh, didn't want to hire any help. So I took uh, two shifts and worked uh, day and night. All right, in 16 hours, I would figure it this way. Two-fifths of whiskey represents then, if uh, 26 is one-fifth, 52 ounces represents two-fifths. In 16 hours, that's just a little bit better than three ounces an hour. I figure, hell, anybody can drink three ounces in an hour. And that's how I operated. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't eat like normal people. Uh, you know, I was a great guy for the beer nuts and a piece of cheese and, and stuff like that. Anything to... Uh, satisfy an immediate hunger pain and uh, I didn't close up my saloon at night in a passed out condition uh, I'm not saying I was in a sober condition uh, I was under the influence of alcohol but I used to count the cash and everything and make my entries into the book and, and do the certain necessary chores that would have to be done so I could be open for business the next day uh, you know, like loading up the beer coolers and, and getting ice machines ready and, and restocking the back bar and, and counting out enough change so that the morning man would have some to open up with. And so I couldn't have been too drunk, but yet I'm quite sure I would drink two-fifths a day. But medicine and men of science tell me that, that my system, unlike or not like, uh, an automobile is almost similar to an automobile. It's just like yours. Uh, it can just take so much abuse. And, and in alcoholism, we call things like the ability to handle it or not handle it, reaching a tolerance point. 
Now, pretty soon my tolerance point was established. Maybe it was established at uh, two-fifths a day. But at that point, then the physical part of our illness begins to take over. I don't quite know the figures because I don't pay that much attention to them when doctors talk about it, but somewhere along the line I have been led to believe that the liver, the liver, which is a vital thing to all alcoholics especially, uh, can only process, can only oxidize one ounce of alcohol within an hour, and that any other amount causes a backup and backup and backup, and pretty soon, of course, you know what happens. Uh, the liver gets bad and it refuses to function because it can't handle the load and the thing called cirrhosis sets in and we die. But as the liver begins to deteriorate, it also causes our tolerance to deteriorate. In other words, after six months of being able to handle two-fifths a day, all of a sudden I find out that I can only handle a fifth a day. And if I persist in this, still backing up on that liver because I'm exceeding its nominal, normal functioning ability, my tolerance keeps going down and down and down. And that's why it has been proven to probably some of you and to me on many occasions, not only through practical experience, but witnessing the effect on other people. But eventually, it doesn't take as long anymore for you and I to get as drunk as we used to get. In other words, what I'm saying is uh, you finally reach a point in your drinking where what it used to take a fifth to do, you almost can get done with a pint. And about the most dramatic example that I've ever had of that, and, and I can prove that here today because there are people here who knew this gentleman, was by a dear friend of mine who used to come up here by the name of Johnny Kelly who worked on the waterfront in San Francisco all his life, uh, was a two-fisted, uh, uh, longshoreman-type drinker, a guy that drank breakfast, lunch, and supper, and then went out to drink. You know, he drank constantly. And when I first met John back in about 1965, I guess it was, uh, he used to be able to drink by his own admission, and I have no reason to doubt it. A fifth, fifth and a half a day. He was a VO drinker. He lived by himself. He made good money, and so he could drink the best. And over the years, as John, I got to know John because he went to drying out places over in Sebastopol in San Francisco, and he used to come up here. And some people in this room right here, I've brought him up here as a guest. But let me tell you how it was. In the very last days of his drinking, now, I knew Johnny Kelly probably better than I knew my own brother, and we had a relationship that was almost as though we were brothers. Uh, John, for some unknown reason, had a lot of faith in me. I don't know if he was an alcoholic or not. I don't really know, and I've often said that, and it's amazed a lot of people that I make that statement. Because John only seemed to get drunk when he decided to get drunk. He undoubtedly would get helpless as hell, unmanageable as hell, but he had that ability to control it so that he just got drunk when he planned on getting drunk. But his difficulty was getting sober once he got drunk. So that brought him to places like this. 
Now, a standard way that John Kelly used to arrive here in the beginning was a car would bring him up, John would have a half a pint of VO hid in his little bag, you know, but we'd always take that right away, but it was sort of a game, I guess. He figured someday they're not going to look for it, you know, but we always got it. It was always a little half a pint of VO, and then what was left in the fifth? Now, in the beginning, there used to be hardly any left in the fifth. John would be a basket case. And then, a few months later, it got to be half of the fifth would be left. And right near the end, and I, I believe John, I don't think he ever told a lie in his life. John always used to call me up before he was going to drink. Not that he wanted any help or anything, but he was just to tell me. I guess it was a security blanket to find out if we were still here, you know. And he said, Duck, I never bought anything more than what I would have in that car, he said, when I get out in front. And as I live and breathe and stand right here, I believe him. And in the last days of his drinking, would you believe that he would come in here in worse condition, worse condition physically, than I had ever seen him when he was drinking that fifth and a half, two-fifths a day, but yet there'd be more than one-half of a fifth left in the bottle. In other words, he'd only drank maybe six or seven belts out of the bottle, and he was a complete basket case. Some of you recall him running around here in his underwear and with his pants on backwards. Some of you took him from his hotel. John, right there, took him from his hotel. He had his pants on either inside out or backwards or something, I don't know. He just completely out of his mind, you know, which definitely proves to me, you know, that this alcohol is, is, is so, it's probably more powerful than any kind of atomic or nuclear energy that was ever thought of, because it has the power to do these things, and, and uh, we can't explain why it has this power. Now. Along the way, in the field of alcoholism, this is the thing John used to bring up that I, I have never gone along with, and I still don't go along with it, and although I accept it as a medical fact, I don't tolerate any comparison with medical illnesses. American Medical Association probably come out and said, all right, alcoholism is a disease. All right, leave it at that, that's fine if it's a disease. Uh, but I don't tolerate members of Alcoholics Anonymous who go around, go around you know, full of self-pity and, and rationalizing that their disease is similar to cancer and to polio and to diabetes, which many of them do from the podiums. Uh, they say, well, I've just got a disease just like cancer and, uh, and all these others. Well, you don't, in my opinion. You don't have a disease like cancer. Uh, the only time your disease is terminal is if you persist in, in drinking. Uh, cancer is terminal in most cases, and you don't have polio. Your disease doesn't demand that you wear braces or walk funny or live in iron lungs, uh, and you're not diabetic, and the people with diabetes don't go around punching their wives in the mouth and running over little kids with their cars and, and stealing money and, and doing all the other rotten things that that the alcoholic eventually becomes very well known for. Uh, so it's one thing to call it a disease, and uh, it's another thing to call it what it really is. 
and what it really is, I've often told in a, in a little antidote, and I apologize to those who heard this before, but I think it's necessary to enlighten some of the newer people here. Instead of calling it a disease, you should call it what a very dear friend of mine labeled it once when, when back in the days when I was doing my social drinking on uh, Chicago Skid Row, as a result of an illusion that I had that somehow, someday, a new miracle of control would come along that would enable me to drink like other people, that the only objective that I had to have in life then was uh, the ability to try to keep myself alive until that uh, discovery came along that would let me control it. And as a result of uh, attempting to stay alive and drink at the same time and being alcoholic, I wound up uh, on Chicago Skid Row for little, almost a year and a half of my life. Now, I don't care what Dean Martin and all them comedians, Don Rickles and them other assholes that make funny cracks about Skid Row and think it's a funny deal. Uh, I never saw anything funny on Skid Row. And I never saw any reason to laugh on Skid Row. Uh, uh, Skid Row in itself is terminal as far as I'm concerned, and men and women die there every day and are violated there every day and, and die in a more agonizing and ugly death than I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, so there's nothing funny about it. And when you're on Skid Row, you live in a constant state of terror and fear. Many times, many times in my early days, I used to rationalize my Skid Row-type drinking more from fear than from any alcoholic reason. I figured the only way I could accept the conditions that I had chosen to live under was to keep myself half-bombed, half-anesthetized all day long to be able to tolerate that fear of wondering, uh, tonight is a couple of kids going to come in the alley while I'm passed out and dump five gallons of gas over me and light me? Uh, they have done that, you know that, you've read papers about that, or am I going to be laying there and some guy's going to cut off my leg or kick out my teeth or chop my finger off to get my ring? Uh, uh, these are things that you, 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 you're fearful of. So to tolerate that, you, you just try to stay bombed, I guess, but of course that kind of rationalization had no solid foundation either. I could have gotten off that street any day that I chose to get off. I have never in my life felt sorry for anyone on Skid Row. I did before I was there myself. But once I was there myself, I knew that they had the same opportunity that I had that any day that they chose to exert any, just a minimum of effort to act with a little bit of, with a little bit of humility they could get off of that street anytime they want. And once you're off, it's only you that can make the decision to return. Now, on Skid Row, because of living in this element of fear, the buddy system becomes very popular. You generally try to travel, if you can, in the accompaniment of at least one other person. I guess you live under some insane idea that if I get drunk, this guy will take care of me. At the same time, he's thinking the same thing. And what usually happens is you both get drunk at the same time and there's nobody there to take care of you. And then there are other reasons that you buddy up with. Some of them 
involve economics. I had a buddy on Skid Row. I hated him with a passion. He wasn't the kind of a guy I'd ever choose to be a friend. But he was my buddy only because he had type RH negative blood. Now, that may not mean too much to some of you people. When you get down to Skid Row, one of your prime sources of income happens to be the sale of your own blood. Now, if you've got a rare type of blood, it can come out pretty good. But if you're a loser like I was, and you got type O positive or type O negative, that's only $4 in the best of places, $4. But this guy, Leonard, this Pollock that I knew, had RH negative, $50, no questions asked. Beautiful deal. So I sort of hung with Leonard. You might be thinking now, well, how can you get by on $54 a month? Because according to law, that's how long you can only give blood once a month, once every 30 days. But when you're working with that ingenious capacity that the alcoholic has in that kind of a situation, uh, you usually have about three social security cards, and you wind up in a nice, pleasant city like Chicago, which centers on the border of two other states, which means that you can go into Indiana, you can go into Illinois, and you can go over to Wisconsin once a month. And if you've got three Social Security cards or three other forms of identification relating to that particular state, that it's possible that you can nine times a month give your blood. And you can come out pretty good this way, especially with RH negative. I don't know why Leonard chose to be my buddy. I had nothing going that I could offer him, except I think I was sort of a, a beating block for him. I think he could take out all of the frustrations that he had inside of him on me, and not in any form of violence, in a form of intellect, because, uh, you know, a lot of you know I don't have that much of an education, and, and I've learned a hell of a lot more since I got sober than I did when I was drinking, so you could just imagine how dumb I was when I was drinking. And Leonard wasn't an intellect or anything like that. He wasn't a college graduate, but he was a self-taught man. He was a reader. He was a guy that liked to read. Christ, he'd read anything. Stand and read billboards. Everything on the billboard he'd read, you know. Even if it pertains to some lady's hygienic solution, he'd read it, you know. He wanted to know about it. One of the most popular pastimes for entertainment on Skid Row is to read newspapers, and of course you have to get them. And that's what makes Chicago Skid Row so popular. It's centrally located Skid Row. Because you can go down into the Union Depot, the Chicago Northwestern Depot, which is at the foot of Madison Street, just before you cross over the bridge into the loop. And that bridge, that Chicago River, that's the borderline for the alcoholics on Skid Row. You don't dare cross over that bridge and get into the business section of Chicago. You wind up in the Cook County Jail that night. But it was fortunate that the depot was there. Now, we weren't allowed, you know, sort of an unwritten thing, I guess, with the police department and the Skid Row alcoholic or the tramps or the bums, whatever you want to call them. We weren't allowed inside of that depot between 7 and 9 in the morning or between 4 and 6 at night. We stayed the hell out of there while them commuters were rushing back and forth, going to work and doing all of the things, because they didn't want to see the ugly side of Chicago. 
But at 9 o'clock in the morning, man, we used to hit that place left and right, you know, and everybody hit it for different reasons. My main reason for going down to the depot was always to get cigarettes, uh, because you could find nice, big, long cigarettes in, in railroad depots. And the best place to find them is in, in entranceways to the trains or to the ticket office where it says no smoking beyond this point. And if they got a big sandbox there, that's usually where guys put out big long ones like that. And they stick them into the sand. They don't get them wet or crumble them or anything like that. And, and you can go around to all these different places, you know, and, and get yourself a good plentiful supply of cigarettes. Other guys go in there to finger through all of the telephone booths. Some guys actually stake out. I believe this or not, you know. Stake out certain booths, that's their territory. And you don't dare get caught with your finger in there, you know, looking for coins because if that guy catches you, you know, he'll, he'll take good care of you. And other guys had other reasons for going to, into places like that. Uh, uh, some, and I often used to wonder who they were, you know. Uh, this might interest some of you women that have husbands that commute. Of course, Ch Chicago is different in this area. But, you know, we used to find a lot of lunches left on the benches. That's right, a little brown paper bag, you know, and have two bologna sandwiches in it and, a, and an apple. You know, that some wife must have given some husband to take to work with him. And, and I guess in the depot he'd dump it because he wasn't about to be a brown bagger in those days, you know, and maybe had a little thing going with a chick in Chicago or something, I don't know. We used to find a lot of things like that. But Leonard's main reason for going to the depot was to get the newspapers. He was a great guy for newspapers. But he'd pick up the Indianapolis newspaper, Fort Wayne, Gary newspapers, the Milwaukee Journal, Milwaukee Sentinel, Chicago Tribune, because all of these people would be commuting from these major cities surrounding this depot, and they'd drop their papers off and throw them on the benches, and Leonard would gather them up. Now, in the wintertime, you used to have to sit in the mission or over the Catholic Charities or some other warm place, you know, to read them papers. But in the spring, in the daytime, you could sit outside in the sun. Uh, not like normal people. I mean, you couldn't go to uh, Lincoln Park or anything like that. You couldn't take the benefit of the city's culture by sitting in a park. And you sure as hell couldn't stand out on Madison Street because commerce was going on then. If you were a skid row alcoholic, you had to go to the alleys, and that's what we used to say. In the daylight, you have to go to the alleys. And that was sort of another unwritten thing that you had between the law. If the law saw you in an alley, they sort of left you alone. You know, they didn't bother you. But if they caught you out there in that main street, stumbling around, trying to cross, and trucks squealing their brakes and things like that, bam, in you went. So Leonard and I were sitting in this alley one day, and because Leonard done all of his reading, he was a smart cookie. He was a smart, he knew the stock market, he knew everything, everything. Didn't have a pot to piss him, but he knew everything. And the only thing that I could come anywhere close to carrying on a, a somewhat kind of an intelligent conversation with him on was sports. Now, just about all men, you know, know something about sports. And uh, we talk a lot about sports. But that's how he put me down. And when he put me down, that used to solve his frustrations. 
And he'd do it this way, you know. We'd be discussing maybe batting averages. And I'd say something like, oh, the last guy to hit 400 in the National League was the first baseman for the New York Giants by the name of Bill Perry. Hit 403 in 1936. And Leonard would look at me and say, no way, you're wrong. Hit 302, 402. Just one lousy little point, you know. Or I'd mention some guy went in 26 games in a row. He'd say, oh, no, no, you make a big issue out of that I was wrong. He'd say it was 25. Just a little bit. Just a, He wouldn't give me the benefit of being a little bit wrong. And I think I stayed on Skid Row, and I was just telling this to somebody the other day. I think I stayed on Skid Row six months longer than I had to, waiting to find something that would stump that Pollock son of a bitch. Because I was building up, uh, you talk about him getting rid of frustrations. I was living for the day that I could either prove him wrong or somebody would ask him something that he couldn't answer. God, he'd get drinks left and right in the bars, and of course that was another reason I hung with him, you know. Somebody say, yeah, well, you win. Give him a drink. And I might as well give his friend one, too. And he, had, he was the one. He taught me a lot of them, you know, especially when you live near Wisconsin. If you're ever going to go on a skid roll in Wisconsin, I'll tell you a good one. You can get them Dutchmen and them German on all the time. Get them talking about dairy products. And, boy, they boast about the Wisconsin cheeses and all of that, you know. And then just innocently and... I'll say, well, we got, uh, Wisconsin's only the second leading dairy state in the country. Jesus, they're ready to fight. They're ready to fight. Because it says on their license, America's dairy land. But a lot of people don't realize that the state of New York is the number one producing dairy state in this country. And as, ever since coming to California, you know, I used to uh, hear them talk about that, and I didn't know at that time about grapes. I don't know if it's true or not now. I think you, California is the number one in winemaking in the country. But do you know what state actually grows more grapes in the state? That's the state of New York. A lot of people don't realize that. And it would be things like that that this goddamn Pollock knew. And he always could back him up, you know, and he, in sports he'd say, give me a nickel and I'll call up the sports editor the Tribune right now. We'll get it answered right now. Boy, and he would. Or if he said something about grapes, he'd have a report from some paper he clipped out. He had clippings in every pocket of his clothes. <laughs> One day I was sitting in this alley with this son of a bitch. And about six blocks over is a great school of medicine. It's the uh, Loyola University. It's a Catholic university medical school. Big, big deal in the Middle West sort of like Stanford is out here and you see medical schools out here. Now, in those days, of course, that was a long time ago, the Jesuit teachers that were in these schools used to take their students out to teach them, you know, whatever disease they were working on, whatever medical problem they'd be working on or studying. They'd take them firsthand to a facility that treated people like that. In other words, if they were studying paraplegics, They'd have a field trip, and they'd go out to the Veterans Hospital at Heinz, where most of the paraplegics who uh, come from the two war wars at that time, 
were being treated. And these students would work firsthand with them and they'd learn about that. And it was about blind people that go to the Illinois School for the Blind or the Illinois School for the Deaf. They're studying tuberculosis. They take them to the Cook County tubercular home. All different agencies that would get firsthand information. And I guess back in those days, there must have been a little bit of interest in alcoholism because they used to bring them on a field trip down to Skid Row every now and then to find out about alcoholism. Because in those days, they didn't separate alcoholics in hospitals. Most private hospitals in the first place wouldn't even accept you if you was an alcoholic. Many of you know that. And those that they would accept were generally in a hospital under a disguised diagnosis. So they couldn't bring this class of students into a hospital and say, we want to talk to the alcoholic patients, because a private hospital say, there aren't any here. We don't take them. We don't take them. And then if they'd reach out to go to the state mental institutions in those days, they didn't separate the alcoholics there. Everybody was classified as mentally ill. It's only been during the last 15 years that alcoholics have been separated at state mental institutions. So there was really no one source of knowledge on practical alcoholism, if there's such a thing as that, than the guys down there in Skid Row. And so the priests used to bring the students over there. And we're sitting in this alley one day, and by golly, here come the students. They were going to talk to me and Leonard. Now, we were, we were for this. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we, everybody looked forward to being selected by the students, you know, not because we thought we could help them, uh, but rather selfishly we knew that you could always get a couple of dimes or a quarter out of some of them students, you know. They were young, innocent, uh, weren't streetwise yet. You know, you could see a little girl with a pinafore on and you say, gee, if I had a quarter, I'd go home to my mother tonight. You know, she'd give you a quarter, or if I just had a dime to get a hold of dear old dad, he'd come and get me, and the kids would give you a dime, and, or tell them I haven't eaten in 11 days, you know, and they'd lay something on you, and cigarette. So, for this reason, we'd like to see them. And they never asked anything different than what people ask nowadays, you know. Why do you live here on Skid Row? Why don't you try willpower? Why don't you get a job, you know? Why don't you leave here? All the standard old crap that you hear, and we just brush them off with the street answers, and then they go on their way, no more knowledgeable than they were when they first came into the alley. And then this one day, and I can see that kid as plain as day, he looked Jewish, because that, that stuck out in my mind, you know. What the hell's a Jewish kid doing in an Irish school, Catholic school, I figured. Now, he might, he might have even been Irish for all I know, but he looked Jewish to me. He had on a pair of big brown-rimmed glasses. He looked like a guy that had nothing but straight A's since he was in kindergarten. And he was standing right in front of Leonard. Now, Leonard and I weren't pie-eyed drunk yet. We were feeling good. We were on about the middle of our second drunk for the day. You guys know what I'm talking about there, you know. Uh, the second one isn't going to take you as long to get blown out of your mind. So we're sitting there sort of in limbo, and uh, we're answering the questions left and right, and all of a sudden this Jewish kid looked at Leonard, and he said, uh, what is alcoholism? And you know, in those days there wasn't as much knowledge about alcoholism as there is today. There weren't commercials on TV, hell, there wasn't even TV, and there wasn't national councils on alcoholism, and there wasn't 
write-ups about congressmen and movie stars and TV personalities. It was sort of a thing you just pushed underneath the couch and wished the Christ would go away. And this kid said to Leonard, you know, what is alcoholism? Boy, and I heard it, and I figured, Jesus, what the hell is it? I had been called one. I had been told I had it. But nobody ever told me what it was. Psychiatrists had said, you got alcoholism. You're an alcoholic. Doctors had told me that. Priests had told me that. My own family had told me that. Employers had told me. Everybody had told me I had it. But nobody ever told me what it was. So Jesus, I left waiting to hear what Leonard was going to have to say. Because I figured, surely Leonard will know. And God damn it, he sat there and he looked at that kid and he put his head down and Jesus, I began to smile. <laughs> Jesus Christ, he don't know. He don't know. Finally, somebody stumped him. A kid, a kid. I could see myself running into a big saloon that night. Leonard, you dummy, you know? Now, I don't want to sound mauled in or dramatic or anything like that. I'm just telling you how it was. I lived with this guy in a warehouse for about a year. Knew him very well. He was a very hard, cruel, mean guy, you know. The only thing that he ever cared about, well, he's probably just like me, kind of thing, but it was himself. He never expressed any kind of emotion or anything like that. And so, I was sort of shocked a little bit, you know, and I saw him look up at this kid. And I swear to God, he was beginning to cry. Not tears running down, you know, but it looked like they were just about ready to pop out, you know, and start rolling down. And he looked as truthful as I had ever seen him in his life. And he didn't have that arrogance about him, you know. Nah, guy hit 403. He didn't have that cockiness about him. It just, I seem to feel as though that Jesus, because Leonard wanted to tell this kid something. And to impress upon this kid that this was the answer. And all he said to that kid when the kid repeated the question was, what is alcoholism? Leonard said the most intellectual thing I've ever heard in my life. It by far exceeds anything that the great men of science in the church and medicine have ever come up with. He looked at that kid honestly and said, it's a bitch. It's a bitch. Immediately the kids were sort of offended. Then they sort of eased back. And we began to all talk again. And as we began to recount the things of what had happened in our lives, Leonard started to tell where he had come from, of a marriage that he had had that I had never even known about, kids that he had had that I had He began to express an emotion that I never even knew he was capable of. And I found myself doing the same thing. I found myself wanting these kids to know. And the kids were glad to know, were glad to know. And then they understood what Leonard meant when he said it was a bitch. It was a bitch. Now, I wish I could say that I, I remembered that. And that that night I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and me and Earl Flynn walked down the street and walked off a skid row. But it wasn't like that. I, I wasn't ready yet, I guess. But I never forgot it. 
I never forgot it. It's a bitch. It's a bitch. And I think many times, you know, that that was the thing that kept motivating me to not only look back at what had happened in my life, but to look back and see what had happened in other people's lives. It helped me believe that the things that hadn't happened yet could happen to me because I had seen and heard this Leonard tell things that I had never heard him say before. And I knew that there was no reason for lying. And that's about the best way I could put it today to you. See, that's exactly what you're into, a bitch. You know, you can sit here as comfortable as you may be now. And I'm not talking about physical comfort. Of course, some of you don't feel that well right now. But some of you might be a little bit secure and still knowing you got a home, still got a spouse, kids still come around and say hello once in a while, still some semblance of a job, there's still opportunities for you, there's still a place, you know, and you might be sitting there, and I say this in no way to hurt you, you might be sitting there sort of smug. And I can only caution you to don't get too smug. Because for every person you have ever heard or ever will hear on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, who has the courage to stand before you and recount his or her experiences, torment and hell, and all of the filthy, degrading, rotten things that took place in their lives as a result of trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish can take place in your life. Because, you see, each one of them at one time undoubtedly sat right where you sit, sat just as smug as you, in many cases were just as secure, if not more secure, than you. The only thing that turned them into criminals was not criminal acts. The only thing that made them whores was not prostitution. The only thing that done all the hell and the terror was a thing called alcohol. Alcohol. And to prove its cunningness, to prove its baffledness and its power, none of us wanted any of those things to happen to us. None of what took place in our lives was done with intent. And if we had had a choice, naturally would have said, for heaven's sake, no. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to go to Skid Row. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my business. I'm convinced that if an alcoholic, and I only say this without too much getting into depth about it, I'm almost convinced that there could be a cure for alcoholism. And that cure would have to be a hypothetical situation. And it would have to take a magnitude of fantasy. And the cure for alcoholism would be the power for some person to show each of us or each person who walks the face of this earth 
what's going to happen in the future of his or her life if they drink. I'm quite sure that if, when I was age 12 or 13, whatever it was, if somebody could have documented for me all of the things that would take place as a result of wanting to drink, I think I would have had the courage, the willpower, and the common sense to say, I never will drink then, if that's what's going to happen. And I think that would be a cure. But you see, there is nothing like that. There is nothing like that. All there is is the people who have walked before you who can come and say, Rosemary, this is what happened to me. Mike, this is what happened to me. John, this is what happened to me. And I didn't mean for it to happen.